Good morning, Sunday, August 18th. We are next to the end of our study on relationships, particularly marriage. We're going to spend the next two weeks looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7, through 7, where there's specific instruction given to wives in the first six verses, husbands, verse 7. So you can see on the handout that I've included more for you than that. Do you see how this section is divided up? 1-6 through six to the wives, 7 husbands. Peter then says, says, finally, all of you. So if you really want to get the relationship thing right, take the all of you and wrap it around the specific uh, responsibilities and privileges of husbands and wives. Let me pray for us and then we'll read the text together. Thank you for the privilege of being together, Lord. Thank you for sending us your spirit, our teacher. Thank you for the precious word of God, for its uh, inestimable wisdom, uh, how good it is for us. So teach us now that we might enjoy these uh, very challenging places to live and marital relationships and do them as under the Lord for Christ's glory's sake. Amen. So someone read for us 1 through 6, Peter's instruction to wives. Maybe a wife would be a good person to read that. Likewise, wives, be subject, subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, for this is how holy women, women Thank you. And how about a husband read verse 7? Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We'll look at that verse next week. And then who would read 8 for us? Because I think it goes with the context. Somebody on this side of the room? Andy, you got it? Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Not repay evil for evil, revile for revile. On the contrary, bless for bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from being deceived. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Thank you. So marriage is really holy ground. It's a place where human hearts experience their own frailty and wounds can run very deep. Are we agreed on that? It's also a place designed by God for unspeakable joy and potential for profound growth and companionship and intimacy. And my guess is most people don't find the joy God has designed for it. And a lot of people are actually suffering in their marriage relationships. And this is exactly what Peter acknowledges because what's the context for these verses? Anybody know what comes right before it in First Peter? 
Well, let's look. Let's look at 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you might follow in his steps. What was the example Christ left us to walk in his steps? Suffering. And suffering unjustly. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Really the only way to endure unjust suffering and trust ourselves to God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So it's in the context of acknowledging that Christians suffer unjustly, Christ being the pattern, and the end of his suffering is our salvation, and God bringing us into the very heart of the shepherd Jesus. It's in that context that Peter begins to address wise. Notice the first word in in chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, in the same way, Christ suffered. In the same way, you're called to follow Christ in his suffering. So Peter's profoundly realistic, and he's acknowledging that wise may find themselves in a place they didn't dream of, they didn't ask for, and they wouldn't desire on their best day. Now, he does have all sorts of marriages in view, because Peter says, he envisions the situation so that that even if her husband is disobedient to the work, so he's looking at all marriage situations, And in particular situation where what? Her husband is? Well, one of two possibilities. He's an unbeliever. Or, how else could you read disobedient to the word? He said he's a Christian, but he isn't walking like a Christian. He joined the church, but he betrays in his actions that he's really not interested in having a a life that's directed by the Lord. He's not really interested in the biblical parameters of this relationship. Uh, He's self-directed and not God-directed. Now, why would that happen, and why would this be a common occurrence in Peter's day? Or Paul's day? So an area is evangelized by one of the apostles, and Juan comes to faith. Tal doesn't come to faith. Why did Juan come to faith and not Tao? The sovereign grace of God. God works salvation in Juan's heart, not so in Tao's heart at the moment. So Tao finds himself waking up in the morning married to somebody he never imagined he was. He didn't sign up for being married to a believer. And Juan wakes up in the morning finding herself married to someone who's who's got very different ultimate values, right? Because now she belongs to Jesus. And everything has changed. So you can see this, this would be a pretty common occurrence. Maybe you could diagram it like this. When a couple starts out, they have some core common values that define the relationship. And the husband, if he stays an unbeliever, the trajectory of his life goes in this direction. The trajectory of the wife's life is with biblical values, concern for the kingdom of God, affection for Jesus Christ, She's wondering, how can I please the Lord? And he's wondering, who's going to win the Super Bowl? So, really different ultimate concerns. Tao, you're wondering who's going to win the Super Bowl? You really don't care, do you? (laughs) Okay, so what do you do in in, in that kind of situation? Well, what what are your instincts? 
when you're on these different trajectories? What would your instincts be? Ladies, I'll let the ladies answer. What are our instincts? When, oh, you could be a man married, married to an unbelieving wife. Yeah. What are your instincts in, these, in this situation? Yep. Vilify. Right, you're wrong. I'm right, you're wrong. Trust yourself. So our instincts are self-effort, self-reliance, defensiveness, and self-management. Okay? And therefore, we need to come before Jesus in this situation in utter helplessness and plead with Jesus that he will abundantly supply what we need. Ask Jesus to create in you, by his grace, through the power of his spirit, Three realities, Peter is saying. He teases out three realities to endure in a situation in really any marriage, but particularly in a marriage where a wife finds herself what we call unequally yet. Here are the three realities. Number one, wordless winsomeness. Wordless winsomeness. When you or I get into a situation where we're chafing under disappointment in a relationship, What's our default method? What do we want to use in that situation? Let's talk more. Let's talk more. We want to use our words. Some of you get angry. Some of you retreat in self-pity. Some of us use the silent treatment. Some of us turn passive-aggressive. Some of us withhold affection as a way of getting back. But we sort of instinctively tend to rely on our words. Let's talk this through so you begin to plead, you correct, you preach, you persuade, you show him where he's wrong, you tell him what you need, and we have a word for that. It reminds, it, it rhymes with rag. <laughs> we nag, right? We nag. You keep using your words as a lasso to bring your husband closer to you and get your way. And Peter says, win him with what? Well, specifically, win him with without a word. That he may be one without a word. That sounds to us like going fishing without bait. Winning someone without a word. <laughs> now look, it doesn't mean you never talk. It doesn't mean you don't do conflict resolution. You've got to communicate about certain things. For example, what? What? Peter's not saying never address your husband when you have conflict with him. What are some things we need to talk about in our marriages? What do we do with the kids? We've got to be on the same page. Who's got that on the right? Absolutely. What do we do with the kids? What's another one? How we spend our money. How are we going to spend our money? That's exactly right. You've been looking at my notes? <laughs> no, I've been living the life. <laughs> and then, you know, if a wife, if he's driving, and he's driving crazy and running off the road, you got to say something. Speak up. That's, right? That's not, that's not what Peter is advocating against. But in the sphere of winning him to what? What are you trying to win him to? Christ. God's perspective. A biblical worldview. That's what you're trying to win him to. And Peter is saying... Don't rely on words, particularly if he's in rebellion against the Lord. Now, husbands, if you have a believing wife and, and you are anxious and jealous to see that together you develop a robust Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, 
What's wrong with that? Nothing. That's absolutely wonderful. Be a leader in that. Be a pace setter in that. The goal is to win your husband to a point of view. Not to prove you're right and he's wrong. Not to show you you were worth marrying and not to demonstrate that you alone have your act together because you walk with Jesus. That would be a big temptation, right? I want to show you I have my act together because I'm walking with Jesus and you are not. You're after the heart. And if their heart is one to Christ, you'll be happier than you ever imagined. Win him to God's point of view without a word. So it means that your main instrument of influence is... What's that? Your conduct. Right. It's not your most cogent arguments. It's not being persuasive. It's your behavior. And look, don't most of us think about that in common sense? Like, I don't care what you say. Show me by your actions. So Peter, in a sense, is just acknowledging the way most of us live by sanctified common sense anyway. And what's the key word in the text that captures her actions? (coughs) Key word is? I'm hearing it. Submit. That's the key word. And for us, it has all the wrong connotations, right? Doormat, abusive, Archie Bunker, male chauvinist pig, which is too bad because we all believe in forms of submission, don't we? You want to get a graduate degree, a degree in education? You've got to submit to the requirements of the university to get the degree. You want to save society? We all do. People need to su- submit to the laws of society. You want to make money in business? You need to submit to the way our culture says business is done in a, in a uh, regulative way. You want to be healed? You submit to your doctor's prescription for healing. So why is submissive so repulsive to us as a word? What's that? Because we don't understand it, perhaps, yes. Why else, Rock? We're selfish and we want to get our own money. Yeah, I don't want to submit to people. I want everyone to submit to me. Don't I want to be God? Right? I want to be Lord of my own little kingdom. Okay, so um, so a submission does not mean inequality. It refers to order. Literally, the Greek word means to put in order under. Put in order under. That's what the word submit means. And everywhere you look in God's universe, you see order and submission. So, for example, in the Bible, submission is used of the creation to God of Jesus to his parents and to his father, of Christians to Jesus, submission of church members to their elders, of children to their parents, citizens to the state, and yes, wives to their husbands. So submission's everywhere you look in the Bible. This isn't just singled out for this one particular institution. So, so yes, David? Just one thought on submission. I feel like part of our struggle with it as well is that we've lost some of our understanding of office Good. The idea of particularly the role of wives and husbands submitting to your husband, not necessarily submitting to me. And there's there's a difference in that in terms of my personal feelings in my office as husband. Good. Uh, there's a sense in which, you know, similar in the church and other things. I'm in the military, and so my submission to my superiors or officers is certainly not to my uh, believing that they are indeed superior in their merits or in their worth and that is, 
good. 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 Excellent point. And that translates over into the fifth commandment, doesn't it? Because you'll find people at a certain point in their lives say, I, I had someone tell me this recently, I don't respect my parents because of the things they do. I said, you don't have to respect them. You have to honor the office of parent in certain ways. Look, if they do things and you don't respect them, that's, that's on them. But you honor the office. That's what's behind the fifth commandment. And what David just explained is why we honor positions in the military, why we honor the government. When the policeman has the blue lights behind you, you pull over. right? You have to honor the office, as it were. You respect the office. And David said something uh, uh, early on in his little you know, help, encouragement to us. And did you notice what he said that would actually endear his wife to submit to the office of husband in his case? He referred to his imperfections and failings. Right, Marty? So for David to be transparent like that, hey, hey honey, thank you. For, I know you want to uh, submit to the office of husband in my case. Thank you for bearing with my frailty, my imperfections, my sins. Help me fulfill this office in a better way. She says, yes, gladly. That's an aspect of submission. Honoring the office and coming alongside your husband. I've asked my wife to say, would you show me things I need to change? I know I need to change this, and I don't want you growing old with me doing this, fill in the blank. Help me with that. And, and she's willing to because it makes life better for everybody. Excellent point, uh, David. So you follow your husband's leadership as God's good design. You never follow him into sin or unrighteousness. You never follow him into disobedience of God or the state. Disobedience to the church. You don't follow him there. And you never follow him putting yourself in a dangerous situation. If he's going too fast on the beltway, tell him to slow down. You're not obligated to submit to that kind of not foolish behavior, are you? I think he's, he's vacating the office of a responsible head at that point. So you tell him to slow down. You don't have to put yourself in a dangerous situation. Biblical submission is a mindset or a disposition that says this. I want you blessed. I want you blessed. That's exactly the way I want to be treated. So I give myself to God, yielding to God's authority, so that God can take me and use me to bless you. It's really it's other-centered, sacrificial servanthood. I want my womanhood to nourish your manhood. So that requires studying what? If that's a fair way to think about submission. I want my, man, my womanhood to nourish your manhood. What does that require you understanding? What two things? the glory of your womanhood and how that relates to him as a man and, and his manhood. Studying him as a man, appreciating him as a man, not despising our differences, but seeing this, uh, the way we complement each other and God's designed us differently. One of the things I do in premarriage counseling is I show a thing where the sexes are different. They're different biologically, they're different and generally in terms of temperament and that kind of things, those are important things to appreciate. Some of the things I do, I do because I'm a man. Some of the things my wife does, she does because she's a woman. Okay. So, 
what's God's reason for encouraging the wife to submit? What's the reason? Again, the goal is to win him to God's perspective. And he's saying, are, are people generally won more by the ear or by the eye? They're won by the eye. They're won by what you see, not by what they, what they hear. Some of you who are arrived late, we say Peter is dispelling the notion that nagging works. Nagging doesn't. Where's the power? The power is invested that, that your husband's stony heart will be broken by what he sees in you, not by what he hears. Um, not by you saying, you always, you never, would you please? Peter's saying that has no power. Well, it has a negative power to push him away. It has no power, as a rule, to win him to God's perspective. So verbal sparring, threats, criticism, manipulating, all that works contrary to our instincts, right? <laughs> our instincts. And, and think of it. Think if wives are in a kind of a distinct position. Maybe if, if, if they're not working outside the home and if they're physically not as strong, what do you have in your resource, in your bag of resources when you don't have those kinds of things? Words. So our instinct is to use our words. And, and Peter is saying, what has the power to melt his heart according to verse 2? Where's the power reside? What is it in verse 2 that has the power to melt this stony heart? Conduct, specifically? Respectful and pure behavior. So you, you want to create a situation, pray for a situation, wife, where your husband says, I may not agree with your theology, but I am amazed at the way your theology leads you to live. And that's sidebar. That's how we want to interact with unbelievers. We want unbelievers saying, I really don't believe all the stuff you believe about God, but I appreciate the kind of person you are as a result of your theology. That, that seems to be what Peter is getting at. I can't, husband says, I can't find fault with the way your Jesus transforms your heart. So the word pure in this context means clean, morally upright, and motives are beyond reproach. That's the idea of becoming pure. And respectful is that you have, um, that alludes to your, the posture that you wife has toward, have towards his role as the leader. You respect the office of husband. Let's push pause there and see if you have any comments, thoughts, anecdotes, reflections, corrections, whatever. Juan? Is it kind of like what? Our government and the people here. The people are committed to the government, but the people can voice their concern through their representative. And the, the government has um, responsibility to uphold the laws and protect the people. Yeah, there, there's a lot of good parallels. One difference is you, you can vote your leaders in and out of office if you don't like them, and that's a really good thing. <laughs> you can't even vote your husband out of office. <laughs> Sorry. That's right. That's right. And so is he. And, and and that's why a healthy marriage is one that's not it's not appealing to what I think or my convictions or my experience or my impressions. It's appealing to what God says. 
And, and wives can find themselves in a situation where the husband doesn't believe that. And the point here is, he needs to see that you do believe that. By your pure and respectful behavior, you're submitting to an, an authority that transcends your own heart. You're not in it for yourself. You want to bring glory to God. Does that help? I mean, I think there are some good parallels. Yeah. And that does not make for a healthy marriage. Both of you wake up in the morning if you're in a Christian marriage and you're submitted to who? Jesus. Jesus. And you want your wife to follow you well? You want your wife to follow you? Show her that is the case. Show her that's the case. Uh, by your by your actions. Do you spend time in God's Word? Does she know you spend time in God's Word? So you're trusting that God will use what He promises when it feels doubtful. Ask God for faith. If this is what you're going to use, Lord, to help my hurting marriage, give me the faith to believe it. I've given you some verses on your handout from Proverbs that do help us for when we need to communicate. Let's just read them in order. Somebody read uh, 1624. So stop and think, are these words like honey? Are they going to bring sweetness and healing? We always encourage to stop and think, what are our words doing? 15, 1. The gentle answer turns away wrath. The harsh words stirs up anger. Your, hu- your husband's coming to you in anger? The temptation is to respond in kind. What's that? Fight or flight. Fight or flight. Yeah. Fight fire with fire? No. Fight or flight. Fight or flight. Yeah. Um, Don't get angry, just get even. Wasn't that the book a few decades ago? No? A gentle answer. Proverbs 21, 23. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from trouble. That would invite you, thank you, David, to do what in the morning... Or in in the arrangement situation where you anticipate, I'm going to be having a tough discussion with my wife or my husband, what might that lead you to pray? Joe? Yeah, but guard my tongue, slow to speak, because stuff's going to come out of here as a a knee-jerk reaction, and I will say things I don't want to say. And we say hurtful things and we go, oh, I didn't mean it. Intuitively, people know you said it because you meant it. It's so hard to take back these things. You're better saying nothing than something harmful. If you think it, that's one thing. By all means, don't say it. Don't say it. How about the next one? Uh, 2511. Like apples of gold in settings of silver. So you bring beauty, you bring majesty, you bring wealth to a situation by the white, right words spoken by the And I think as a result of prayer and asking to be filled with the Spirit and having your mind and your heart soaked in the Scriptures and the Scripture that has power to overcome the words that are going to come out of indwelling sin. And how about 1218? There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, 
Do you know anybody that that verse describes? Do you know somebody like that? When they speak, it's like they're just. Have you met anybody like that? I've met a few. It's tough. I don't know that there's a lot of gospel in that heart when they're speaking like that. The tongue of the wise brings healing. How will my words bring healing to this situation? So ladies, set the tone if your husband won't. Don't slump to his level if, if he won't speak winsomely. Okay? Second grace at your disposal according to the text. Inner beauty. Somebody read verses 3 and 4 for us. Read uh, from the text, 3 and 4. Thank you, Wong. So he's he's acknowledging that there's a temptation to do what? Try to win your husband by the way you look. That's effective. That works. Men are very wired uh, physically, as it were. And so whether it's jewelry, clothing, shapeliness, Peter is saying the way to win him is with, with your heart. Is he forbidding doing things that are sexy? Or is sex appeal bad? Biblically? Is that a bad thing? Absolutely not. Just read the Song of Songs. Sex appeal, sexy, whatever. That's not bad. It's not, Peter's saying it's not an instrument to win your husband to God's point of view. Right? It has no power over his heart. So for a woman, ironically, the inner beauty is something that's evident to all. Inner beauty is evident to all. We think outward beauty is what's evident. No. The inner beauty is what tends to shine through. And he says it's imperishable. The other, our physical beauty, perishes. And it's authentic. It doesn't fade away. You don't need to put makeup on it every day. So you're not dependent on things you have to purchase at the store. Thank God. You can do this without any financial resources. And so this inner beauty is depicted by what two words? By Peter. What are the two words that, that describe this inner beauty? Gentle and quiet. Okay. Is gentle distinctly feminine? No. no. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. When Jesus invites broken, restless sinners to come to himself, he says, Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you. My heart is gentle and humble. The twin sister of gentleness is humility. It's being other sinners. Not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Gentleness does not need to be pushy. It does not need to assert rights. It, doesn't, it isn't selfishly aggressive. What gentleness actually produces is a huge amount of confidence and self-control because the idea is power in gentleness, power under control. Power under control. You know who you are. You know who you belong to. And uh, this is the same sort of gentleness that marks the life of Jesus as he's depicted at the end of the chapter just before this. Quiet, it means you're not rambunctious. You've got nothing to prove. You don't have to, be, you don't have to shout in order to be heard. Your behavior commands a hearing. You can be quiet because you are so intact and secure in what? 
the love of Christ for you. You're secure in the love of Jesus for you. Sometimes people say, oh, so, sorry to be critical, and I'm like, don't worry, I spent time with Jesus this morning. He knows everything about me. The cross has criticized all of us deeply, profoundly, and, if you, and we, we come out of the criticism of the cross, what? Knowing we're loved, we're treasured, we're precious possession, we're trophies of God's grace. That's where we rest. We come out from the, uh, our time before the cross Basically, we can say to ourselves, you think I'm bad. You haven't seen the worst of it. Jesus has, and he loves me. That, no, that's what produces gentleness and quietness, right? And a wife could even say to an unbelieving husband, if you saw me for how precious I am to Jesus, you'd worship me. If, she, if he did. So, but she's patient because she knows his eyes are blinded, She's patient. She knows the only reason she's a believer is God has opened her eyes and given her a new heart. She's resting in the preciousness of who she is before the Lord. Okay? What did it cost God to make this wife his precious possession? The death of Jesus on the cross. It cost God immeasurably. You'll hear that again in the sermon this morning. Someone once said this, a pretty face may capture a man's attention, only a beautiful spirit will hold it. Okay? What's the third thing? Fearless hope. Peter provides motivation by mentioning examples in the past in the Bible who did indeed submit to their husbands and lived to tell about it. Okay? Somebody read verses 5 and 6 for us. In other words, this is an example of those who adorned themselves with a precious and... Uh, quiet spirit, a gentle quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Somebody read those verses for us. For this is how the holy So where do they draw their strength? How do they escape the natural tendency to be afraid of an overbearing husband or a weak leader? Where do they draw their strength? They hoped in God. They hoped in God. This is what enabled Sarah, the matriarch supreme, to respect her husband Abraham's headship. And if you read Genesis, dude, he blew it again. And he's Twice he lies about Sarah being his sister and all this kind of stuff. And she hoped in God, not in Abraham. Now this phrase, she called him Lord, it's just a polite form of sir, mister. Okay? And it doesn't mean she never yelled from the kitchen, Honey, get me the ketchup. <laughs> it means she... I re- swear. Huh? <laughs> what? I swear if you want to. <laughs> you just, I swear if you want to. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, she respected Abraham's position as master of the house. She sought to bend her will to his. And incidentally, in the Jewish mindset, it was, in fact, the highest honor of women in the covenant community to be in that line of women who received grace and help from Sarah's God. And you, because you know the glory of Sarah's God, that he will keep covenant, you will then do what is right. And isn't that one of Peter's points? 
he's making in the text. If you go down to verse 13 of 1 Peter 3, he says, Who is there to harm you if you do what is right? Obey the Lord. Obey the Lord. Now, we know that there are believers in this world that are losing their lives for doing what is right. But in the ultimate sense, doing what is right before the Lord, who is there to harm you, nothing ultimately can touch your soul. He's saying this kind of submission can't harm you. This kind of submission reveals the glory of Christ, bearing up under unjust treatment, profound sorrow, without a word. That's what happened at the end of chapter 2. Without a word. This is what, how Jesus bore up. That's true. If you go back to, the, to the, um, the trial of Jesus, as it were, the only time he speaks is to defend his identity. Are you the son of God? Pilate asked. It is as you say. But as they're hurling insults at Jesus, what is he saying? Nothing. Because standing in our place as accused before a holy God, we have nothing to say. So Jesus did not answer the accusations, even though he himself was uh, without sin. Standing in our place, we are guilty. Guilty of being late. <laughs> what does it mean? Shoot me. Here's the gun. Shoot me. <laughs> what does it mean to hope in God? To hope in God. That's where your ultimate confidence is. Where, do we, where are we tempted to put our confidence, our security? Where are we tempted to put it? What's that? In ourselves, our performance, our look for put our confidence in our spouse, our resources, our reputation, our accomplishments. No, they, they put it in God. That's their functional hope, is God. Why? He never changes, he never lies, he never fails. Thoughts? Say it again, Paul. Okay, what's he saying? What's Peter saying? Yeah, she went along with with Abraham's trickery and deception and everything, and thank the Lord God exposed it. So she had a faith in the Lord. She trusted the Lord. What else could it mean, guys, ladies and gentlemen? It is an odd sentence. It's an odd sentence. Do not fear anything that it, that it is Well, what are the things that cause us to be frightened? Threat to our physical harm, threat to our emotional harm, threat to our resources. Sorry. Uncertainty of the future. Uncertainty of the future. There's, there's a whole lot of legitimate fears in this life. <clears throat> And Peter's saying what? In the face of those, don't let that compromise your steadfastness to be faithful to the covenant even as Christ was. Think how horrifying it was for Jesus. He was facing the wrath of his father on the cross. I mean, it's one thing, all the physical torment he underwent. You know, blindfolded, they ripped his back to shreds with cat and eye tails. They pressed the crown of thorns on his forehead. How painful that was. They punched him in the face, punched him in the face mocked him, 
But he was, that's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, let this cup pass me. He's going to drink the cup of the wrath of God. And it was, why does he face that? Why does he do that? It was terrifying. But his, his, in the garden, his sweat is like drops of blood for the ultimate good of winning us as his precious possession. You talk yeah. about the temple of the Holy Spirit, if you're worried about something all the time, you know, you know people are like, they're constantly worried and full of anxiety, um, you're not going to have that temple of the Holy Spirit. Exactly. Uh, a worried spirit isn't a quiet spirit. And you're all focused on yourself, right? What about me? What's going to happen to me? Me, me, me. Versus other-centered, putting your focus on your abilities to serve that other person. Any other thoughts or comments? Yes, Ken? Well, I'm, obviously we don't know a lot of what Sarah had to think about. So Abraham's going to go towards a go to the place I'll show you. He doesn't even know where he's going to end up. You're going to kill our son? Yeah. The, the one for whom the lion is going to come? Now, it, does it follow that you don't talk to your spouse about decisions and should we move here and should we get this car and what church should we go to? Does it follow that you don't talk to your husband about those things? No, that doesn't follow. A good relationship, there's a healthy dialogue. A husband who says, if, if I'm going to ask you to follow me, your opinion is incredibly important to me. Weigh in. Let's talk about this. You make decisions as one flesh, one decision-making unit. Submission doesn't mean he does all the thinking, you do all the following. He does all the decisions, you have nothing to say about it. That's not what's in mind. A man shall leave his husband and wife, uh, cleave to his, uh, his mother and father, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, one decision-making unit. Okay, we're out of time. Oh, Juan, one last question. Is it possible to trust you? Trust your husband? Interesting. Like, let's say we have a conversation about something, uh, a decision, and then entrust it for him to go out and do it without going around and make sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, trust and verify. <laughs> I mean, if you give trust to someone, what needs to happen? Is there, is there ultimately need to be discussion on follow-through? My wife says, I'm in charge of getting the oil change on this car this week. Is it fair for her to ask me a few days later, do you have the appointment? Is that okay? Of course it's okay. Now, the difference between micromanaging somebody and doing follow-up. My wife has to follow up with me. She says, hey, is such and such on your calendar? And I don't mind, because not everything gets on my calendar that she wants me to do. So I am not offended by that. If anything, I've created that situation. If I was of utmost trustworthiness and my wife only needed to tell me something one time, she would never have to ask me again. So that's on me. Right? So there's a sense when she has a decision made, wise, trust your husband, but you can do some Monday morning quarterbacking about that decision and follow through. What's wrong with that? You've got a relationship. You're friends. That would be my perspective on that. Okay, let me pray for wives. 
Thank you, Lord, that you address this precious uh, institution of wifehood in this text. And you anticipate a really, really difficult and suffering situation. A husband that's not walking with the Lord. Or says he is, but really isn't. So we pray for our, the wives in our church, in this room, those that we know, that you'd give them grace to live this text, to find their hope in you, to be smitten with the love of Jesus, to, and, and to look to Jesus to create in them that precious, that spirit that is precious in your sight, that is respectful and quiet. Give, give these wives grace upon grace, that by their beautiful behavior they may uh, win their husband without a word, win them, use that to win them to you. In Jesus' name. Next week, husbands.